Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 1714. Today we're going back in time and talking about endurance racing in the 60s and 70s. Buckle up. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, inspiring automotive enthusiasts, and welcome to Cars Yeah. Today I'm in Los Angeles, California, where the sun always shines, with a very special guest by the name of Al Satterwhite. Hey, Al, welcome to Cars Yeah. Are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? You betcha. All right, we'll have some fun. Now, before I give you a proper introduction and we dive into your life, I want you to share one little thing that most people maybe, just maybe, don't know about you. Well, um, I have a soft spot for furry kittens, <laughs> furry cats. So I better because I live with three of them. Oh you gosh, know, they, they drive me—they drive me crazy. But I couldn't live without them. Oh yeah, cats can do that. That's for sure. So, all right. Well, the secret's out. Uh, Al loves a little furry kittens. Very cool. Well, let me give you a proper introduction. We're going to dive into your life here, uh, which is quite extensive. We're going to talk about a very cool new book that I've got in my hands that I enjoyed quite a bit last night. Al Satterwhite is a photographer and filmmaker whose career spans decades. His career began as a major newspaper, and he spent over decades covering assignments for almost every major magazine that was in print. He owned a production company focused on advertising with national and international clients, including some of the largest companies in the world, all that you've heard of, no doubt. Al was a consultant for Kodak for digital imaging. He lectured at Boston University, the Brooks Institute of Photography, that fine place in Santa Barbara, NYU, and many others. He also holds workshops at various facilities around the United States. He shot commercials, features, and award-winning feature shorts as both a cameraman and a director, and his current focus is on filmmaking. Al is also working on several books and museum projects, and his new book that I mentioned earlier is titled The Racers. It's a personal scrapbook of endurance motor racing from 1963 to 1973. We'll be back in just a moment to talk with Al a lot more, but first a word from our very valued partners and sponsors here at Cars Yeah, so keep your seatbelts on. We'll be right back. Do you have a pet in your household that loves to go for rides? Our pets are part of our families, but they can be very hard on your vehicle's interior. Covercraft offers a wide variety of solutions to protect your vehicle from Fido's rough treatment. Canine cargo area covers are padded for comfort and provide door-to-door protection. Pet pads have built-in features that keep cargo areas and seats protected, Covercraft's quality pet solutions cover cargo areas, bucket or bench seats, and protect from damaging claws, pet fur and hair, mud, moisture, and drool from permanently damaging those fine finishes on your vehicle's interiors. Choose from a variety of styles and covers for almost every vehicle that's made. And here's something I've got just for you. And for Fido, use the code YAH120 at Covercraft.com and you'll get 10% off your Covercraft pet protection order. That's right, 10% off. That'll make Fido happy. Simply use the code YAH120, Y-E-A-H-120 at checkout. Covercraft, protecting the things that move you. And Fido too. All right, Al, we're back. And as we continue on this journey, I'm going to call your life 
I want to start with a success quote or a mantra that has meaning for you. It's a nice way to get those inspirational tires turning or the shutter clicking. Oh, I don't, do they even click anymore now on cameras? So Al, take the wheel. I got this, I believe, from listening to a song by Bono. My credo is kind of like, don't let the bastards grind you down, which basically translates into once I have a vision or once I've got something that I'm focused on and want to do, I just keep at it. And it can be very, very difficult. I mean, like when I was doing advertising or even editorial, sometimes you're dealing with these difficult art directors who don't have a clue as to how to get the shot that they want. So, you know, they would basically give me the assignment and I would execute it. And the same thing, like now I tend to focus on doing books, publishing books from my archive and my interest. And it's like with a racing book, it took years basically of doing various layouts for myself and trying to find a publisher until I did. But, you know, I never gave up. And it's probably taken me five, six, seven years to get this book in print. Well, it's a marvelous book. As I mentioned earlier, I sat down last night in preparation for our talk today, poured myself a nice uh, glass and started scrolling through this. And what it was for me being a lover of vintage racing and endurance racing and specifically from this era, 63 to 73, what a marvelous era. I mean, the progression of the cars and the marvelous drivers and all this history there i felt like i was sitting with you going through your scrapbook the way it's designed the way it's let it uh, laid out i thought it was fantastic so let's kind of dive into this book a little bit first and foremost who are your publishers uh the publisher is um a german publisher uh delius well, i'm going to say this <laughs> clausing <laughs> Right. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Um, I was trying and, to figure it out myself. <laughs> I mean, for some reason, I always have trouble pronouncing that. But this has been one of the best experiences with a publisher I've ever had. I mean, I've had publishers before, and sometimes you have to fight with them, and you have to argue with them, and they want this done and that changed. And the great thing about them was they liked my original concept, and they went with it. And I just gave them a lot more work than I had in the first version I had done. And I never had any issue with them. They were just such great people to work with creatively and executionally and, you know, basically making the book and getting it out there. I had done this book originally, self-published it, um, because I couldn't find anybody to do it. But because it was so expensive, I was selling the book for $750, which, of course, nobody can afford. Um, and I sold about 30, 30 or 33 of them before I finally found a publisher who could sell them for a reasonable price. So it's been great because they've got twice as many pages and two or three times as many photos as in the original version that I did. Nice. And I'm very happy with what they did. Yeah, they did a great job. It, it, like I said, it the way that the graphics were done... Uh, now, did you design the book, or did was there another person involved with the design? Well, they had their own art directors, but basically they followed pretty close my original design and concept, cool. which was laid out on, you know, like ruled paper and yeah. scotch tape, and, and I had photographed a lot of my, because I had saved all my old press credentials and some of my uh, camera equipment, and I just sort of spotted them throughout the book just to sort of add a little something different to it. Oh, yeah. 
some people think it's distracting and other people, you know, kind of like it. And I basically was pretty happy with it because I, I've been through this. <laughs> I can't tell you how many versions until I thought I had it the way I liked it. Well, having come from the advertising world where I worked for decades and I was one of those crazy art directors, at least I hope I knew what I wanted, uh, and a designer as well, I really love the look and feel. It's very casual. Like I said, I felt like I was sitting with you going through your actual scrapbook, the way it's done. I love the way it's done. And the foreword is by a past Cars yeah, guest, Brian Redman, that little guy. Yeah, Brian's great. And he also allowed me to use a description that he wrote in his book about doing one lap in Daytona in a 917 Porsche, <laughs> yeah. which is fascinating. Yeah, yeah. He's a wonderful guy. I loved having him on my show. In fact, the day I had him on my show was his birthday, and he sang the uh, British birthday song, which I had never heard. It was hilarious, and uh, had him on a, <laughs> I had him on a virtual wine tasting that I did with Adobe Road Wines, one of my sponsors, and he sang it for us again because one of our uh, guests that day was having a birthday. So, well, this book is wonderful. It's 190 pages. It's nice. It's big. It's about 12 inches square. I love the way it is. Hard bound, perfect bound. It's really, really well done. And it dives into a magical period from 63 to 73. And as I was going through this thinking, my gosh, how lucky, fortunate or planned Al's life was to be able to be at these events. So kind of take us through a little bit of that time going back, uh, that magical time of racing where things were a lot more accessible, the drivers, the paddocks. uh, And of course, with a press pass, you could get to places that maybe other people could. But today, uh, as spectators, we could only dream of getting as close to some of the folks. And I noticed one of the pictures in here uh, was from a racing team in 1963, and there was a cheetah sitting in front of an XKE. And I was going, why is there a cheetah? And I can see now from reading, it was a little press thing, but all these guys are kind of standing back going, not sure sure I want to kiss or pet that kitty. That thing looks a little nasty. So walk us through some of the fun times you had way back when. Well, that particular image was uh, Alfred Momo's doing. He was uh, promoting the two Jaguars that he had entered. And I guess he called somebody and said, give me a cat, give me a Jaguar. And nobody really knows the difference, but they brought a cheetah. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say a little little wrong kind of cat, but that's okay. The idea is there. Yeah, yeah most people wouldn't know the difference. but And it was sort of tame because it, it just sort of sat there and Nobody really went up to pet it, but it made for some great photography. And, of course, that was his whole motive or motive for doing that. But like you say, in those days, I mean, there were still a lot of photographers, but nothing like today. And I always tried to get to the races like two days early since I lived in Florida and I lived about two to three or four hours from the racetracks. Um, I could get there early and and there's hardly anybody around other than the crews and they're you know they're doing practice and tuning the cars and work on their lap times and so you can wander around uh they get to know notice your face and you become familiar and you can make some sort of friends and have access later during a race also you get some very interesting pictures during practice because nobody's there like there's one picture of steve mcqueen who had a broken foot uh, in 1970, and he's, he's riding down Pitt Lane on his little motor scooter with his broken foot. <laughs> yes. And I don't know. I don't know if anybody else even got that picture, but 
you know, it, you could get close to people and uh, photography in racing or anything else is always about access. Mm-hmm. If you don't have access, you can't do anything. So it was great in those days to be able to have that access. And it was, a, it was a fascinating 10 year period. You could maybe call it the golden age of racing because everything was changing. I mean, they were improving brakes and improving aerodynamics and improving everything. And there were a few sponsors. So a lot of the drivers, and I'm sure Brian probably told you this, they didn't exactly make a whole lot of money driving. Right. But they did want to make a living, and they also did it, a lot of them, because they loved it, you know, and that's what they wanted to do. But a lot of them, because it was dangerous, were getting killed in those years. And that was the sad part of it. And, you know, as they progressed, safety got a lot better, and Everything improved radically. I mean, all the way up to like the the 917 Porsche was probably the ultimate in speed and aerodynamics and anything else you can imagine. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. You know, the the plethora of drivers that are in this book, uh, the faces and the personalities and the fact that you're so close. And you can even see that in some of the earlier shots of hardly any logos on any cars or the driver's suits. They were just there driving, and there was a camaraderie going on between them, and they spoke to each other. I'm not sure sure now when you think about something like F1 or NASCAR, these guys even talk to each other. They're all isolated and kept away from each other and kept away from the public in many cases. It's a really, really fascinating read, and I'll put a post and a link to where you can get your hands on a copy of this to make a great uh, gift. Now, of course, the day the show goes live, I want to wish a Merry Christmas to everybody listening and to you, Al. But that's okay. You, you know, you can give gifts any time of the year to a car buddy or a car gal. So uh, I would encourage you to get your hands on this. You know, one of the things I always ask my guests, Al, is to talk about a challenge or even a failure they faced along the way. Your career is so wide and varied. And as we're recording the show, you're getting ready to move, another big move from L.A. back to New York, where you've lived before. That can be a challenge, moving everything and picking up and going across the country. But would you share maybe one thing that you faced in your life and your career that was a bit of a challenge, but more importantly, what did you learn about it and how did it help you move forward in your career and your life? Well, probably my biggest challenge was not letting myself get too comfortable because it's easy once you're, uh, once you're doing what you, you're like and you're good at to keep doing it and, and keep doing it the same way. And, and I, I sort of got bored after a while of doing this or doing that. And even when I got into advertising, I would shoot a car shoot where we might spend three or four weeks uh, in prep, actually shooting on location or the studio and then on post when I had to edit it. And after doing that, it was kind of like I talked to my agent and said, give me something different, you know. (laughs) I want to shoot something else. And it was always about trying to stay outside your comfort zone. It's it's always a challenge, but you know if you don't challenge yourself, you you don't get ahead. You don't see anything new. I mean, I learned that in traveling. After a while with traveling, because I, I got into that early in editorial, because all we did was travel. I mean, I felt comfortable enough that you could dump me in any city in the world, and somehow I'd be able to survive mm-hmm. because you just you know you have to think differently, as they say, outside the box. And it was always like that because I started newspapers and and then I wanted to be an editorial photographer. I wanted to work for Life magazine, as most of us did in those days. So I had to quit 
the newspaper and start freelancing. And, you know, that's a big shockeroony because oh, all of a sudden yeah. you have <laughs> no, no paycheck income. <laughs> yeah. And, and I did editorial for about 12, almost 15 years until I woke up in a motel one morning and the only way I could figure out where I was was to look on the telephone. Oh they usually have the city there. And I, at that point, I realized, you know, I have to do something different. <laughs> so I, I moved towards advertising uh, because it was a lot more lucrative, uh, not as creative, but very difficult to get into because every time you change occupation, even though they're all photography, nobody in the magazine world knew who I was as a newspaper photographer. Mm. And nobody in the advertising world knew who I was as a, a magazine photographer. So it's always about you have to start over usually somewhere down the bottom and build your reputation up again to to be able to get jobs and, and make a living. And, you know, it's part of it's the journey, you know, as they say, it's the getting there that's more interesting than having gotten there. Because once you've gotten there, now what do you do? Right, right. Um, you can only do that for so long and, you know, it gets too comfortable. I love this idea of not getting too comfortable. I mean, it's led you down so many wonderful and various paths. And today, with this move going back to New York City, where you used to work, and you're getting more involved in filmmaking, which is something you've done before. You've worked in that industry. Tell me a little bit about what your goals and aspirations are there. Well, I, I, when I got bored with advertising, I a lot of advertising photographers would move into shooting commercials. And I wasn't all that excited about shooting commercials because I wasn't all that excited anymore about doing advertising because mm -hmm. it wasn't creative. I really wanted to shoot a uh, motion picture. So I got myself on a movie set, a feature set as a still photographer by offering my services for free because <laughs> it was a low budget film. Yeah. But they had, you know, name actors on it. So I could watch. I could look at every position on the film as who is doing what and figure out what do I want to do. Ah, and right. I didn't really want to be the director. I wanted to be the DP, the director of photography, the guy that was in charge of the cameras and the lights. So he puts the camera somewhere or sometimes multiple cameras and also is in charge of what kind of lighting we're going to do. And of course, you know, you're in cahoots with a director because it's his picture, technically. And so the two of you have to work it out. But that was what really got my interest. So I bought a couple of motion picture cameras and started trolling for work. And basically, you spend a lot of time shooting stuff for free or for very little money just to get something for your reel and to get your name out there. And it was again a challenge and it was very interesting and but i wasn't making a lot of money i was basically living out of my bank account um and after doing that for 10 years and i was still doing a few things on the side to pay the bills i realized i wasn't going to make a living as a director of photography um i got started too late in life and too old to compete with you know all the new kids coming up so i was more focused. I still like doing that, and I still do it with one particular director. We do features every couple of years when he gets financing. But I was—I had discovered my archive by then. All these negatives and 35 millimeter chromes that I had kept over the years, and that had been returned from my agencies over the years. So I started going through those. It takes a while to figure out what you have, and then what you can—what <laughs> yeah. can you—what can you do with it? 
And I started coming up with ideas for books. I did a book on um, Muhammad Ali and Arnold Schwarzenegger because I had photographed both of them in the uh, 70s in Miami and in L.A. Mm -hmm. And I put together a big coffee table book called Titans. Mm. which I thought was great because these are these were the only two guys I felt you could go anywhere in the world and mention their name and people knew who they were. Unfortunately, it was not a very good marketing idea mm. because, you know, bodybuilders would look at the book and they would go, what's with a boxer? I'm not interested in boxing. Right. And, and Ali fans would look at the book and they'd go, what's with a bodybuilder? I'm not into <laughs> bodybuilding. And, and so, and the fact that the, the the publisher didn't really do any promotion, didn't help either. Mm -hmm. So it's a really well done book. Um, again, I laid it out a different style and hired a couple of writers to do bios and found quotes from both people. But it didn't very, it didn't go very far, but it was a great learning tool. And of course, the publisher basically sort of paid for it, although it's hard to, to gauge what you get paid after you spend like two years producing a book. Right. And, you know, I moved on to, um, I did another book a few years later called The Cozumel Diary, which is about Hunter Thompson, the Gonzo journalist. And Hunter and I had been friends in the 70s, and I did the Playboy interview that he did for Playboy magazine. So I put together all these pictures from Cozumel, because I'd been there almost a week with Hunter. And um, I got the original Playboy writer to do the foreword, and uh, a writer who's the chair of Boston University wrote a great book on Hunter's life to do the postword. And I, again, I couldn't find a publisher, so I self-published it on Kickstarter. Mm. And because there were a lot of Hunter Thompson fans, I did really well and was able to pay for the publishing and send out the books and, and then move on from there. But again, it's just so difficult finding publishers. So I have a lot of different concepts. My big love right now is I'm working on a book called Southern Exposure. And it's basically black and white images from the 60s and 70s from the South when I traveled all over the South on either magazine assignments or self-assignments that I gave myself. And I've gone through like four or five versions of layout Still, what I think I'm pretty happy with right now, but I'm still looking for a publisher, and that's that's the journey. That's the journey <laughs> for sure. Well, let's take a short break. We come back. I want to talk a little bit about your passion for racing and cars, and uh, why you loved doing that for so long. So sit tight, keep the seatbelts on, and we'll be right back. American Collectors Insurance. That's how I now protect my Porsche Turbo, the one I call my Orange Crush. Are you insuring your classic vehicles on your regular daily driver auto policy? Then your special vehicles are at risk. Your regular auto insurance carrier won't tell you how much you'll get until after a claim. And more than likely, you'll be in for a rude awakening. With a agreed value policy from American Collectors Insurance, you'll be paid your vehicle's full agreed value. No surprises. If you're driving your collector car less than 5,000 miles a year, do what I did. Call American Collectors Insurance and get your very own agreed value policy tailored to your specific vehicle. If you're like me, you're picky about who works on your special ride. 
A great policy allows you to choose your repair shop of choice, and that means you'll know the job is done right. I shopped around and decided to protect my car with American Collectors Insurance. They've been protecting vehicles since 1976. Give them a call for a quote today at 866-ACI-YEAH. That's 866-224-9324. And protect the ones you love. I did at American Collectors Insurance. Classic car insurance designed by collectors for collectors. Let's take a pit stop from the conversation and talk about my charity of choice here at Cars Yeah, America's Automotive Trust. America's Automotive Trust is a group of like-minded nonprofits working together to preserve and promote car culture across the country. Together, they provide scholarships and grants to aspiring technicians and restoration artists. They provide youth education programs and bring communities together through auto-related events, car shows, and drives. One of those nonprofits is very near and dear to my heart because it's right down the road from the Cars Yeah headquarters. It's the LeMay America's Car Museum in Tacoma, Washington. One of the world's truly great automobile collections and one of those must-see bucket list destinations for car people like you and me. If you haven't seen it, I hope you make a trip soon. And if you have seen it, it's probably time to visit again. To learn more about this fantastic museum, go to www.americascarmuseum.org. And while you're there, you can donate to help them keep their engines running. That's www.americascarmuseum.org. All right, we are back, Al, and I'd love for you to share a story that instigated this passion that you have for cars and racing. I mean, you spent a lot of time at tracks, that's for sure. Was there a pivotal moment in your life that you realized you were a bit of a car guy? Well, in high school, and this is in the 60s, you know, we were all in car mad. You know, there were 409 Chevys and 427 Fords, and you were either a Ford or a Chevy guy, basically. And then uh, in my senior year, one of my friends dragged me to Sebring because it had become popular with college students because it was in March, sort of around spring break, I guess. So he dragged me down there. I think we probably camped out or slept in the car or something like that. But when I saw that race, and this would have been about probably 1961, I was like, wow, I've never seen anything like this. There are all these cars, and, and almost all of them were foreign. Right. I mean, there were some Corvettes, but there were Ferraris and Alphas and cars I'd never heard of before, and and all those foreign drivers and some American drivers, and I never heard of any of them before. And, of course, I didn't have a press pass. I'm looking over a fence at the track, but it was like, mesmerizing and from that point on like the next year i got myself a newspaper assignment and started shooting it and i i I mean i like cars i love the designs and the shapes and the the way they handle but what really got me interested in racing or once i got into racing were the people yes i love people and i love shooting people whether it was the driver's or the mechanics, or people around, which is why I like practice, because you can, they're a lot more casual than the pressure isn't on because they're not racing yet, so they can be a little more relaxed and sort of be themselves. But for me, it's always about the people, Yep, and, and that's why I love shooting. 
Absolutely. Well, you've definitely got an eye for people, that's for sure. Was there a first special car in your life that you owned, something that you kind of felt like, man, I've always wanted one of these? And and what was it? Maybe share a special memory you have about that ride. Well, I got into from racing, like shooting racing. I got in because I, I had a Ford in high school, and once I got into racing, you know, I had a, something different. So I got a, I got a, a Triumph TR4, which was kind of my college ride for a yeah. few years. Yeah, awesome car. But yeah, it was fun. It was kind of, it was different, um, and it kind of took you back from driving a V8 engine to something that's four-cylinder and not quite as, you know, mind-numbing. But right. I'm driving by this car lot one day, and I just happen to look in the, to the left, and I, in the back of the lot, I see this car, and I do a U-turn, go into the lot, and I ended up buying a 1966 Shelby GT350. Oh, okay. And this would have been, I think, <laughs> in 1967. Yeah. And that car was a lot of fun. I had a great time in that car. How bad? It was like no other car. I mean, I wouldn't want that car today, but in that time it was, I mean, they were all daily drivers. I worked for a newspaper and I was driving a Shelby. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Wow. Well, they're really fun. I had a a 66 GT350. It was a clone or a tribute car, I guess you would call it today, that a friend of mine and his father built. And it was so perfect. I actually took it to a Mustang show and and won first place in the Chelby GT350 class, which wasn't really planned. That's a different story. But I drove that car for a couple of years every day up here in the Northwest where it's wet. It was a little dicey when things got slippery. Uh, And of course, being an old car, you know, you get that foggy windows. And But I just love that car. It was so much fun. People would always come up to you when you got gas and talk about their story about a Mustang. What a fun car. And the fact that you had a real one. Holy cow. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I ever got better than nine miles to a gallon. (laughs) No, I don't think I did either. That thing sucks some gas. I'm going to get into your head a little bit here, Al. If you woke up tomorrow and you were manifest as a vehicle, not what you want to be, but your personality as a vehicle, what would Al be and why? Uh, I would be a smart car with attitude. (laughs) And it's totally totally off the wall uh but it's totally functional i mean i i had one i just sold it uh for the move to new york we had a uh 2016 actually a five-speed manual smart car wow and it's it can almost turn it can almost make a u-turn in a garage uh-huh yeah oh yeah <laughs> it can it can park anywhere it's fun and peppy and zippy and we use it to go to Costco, and you can load up that back shelf with everything that we used to buy and try to stuff into the two trunks <laughs> in a Porsche Cayman. And it's just a great car. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I had a, I, I, some kids once say, oh, man, you ain't going to get any chicks with that. And I went, you crazy, man. It's a chick magnet. They love it. Yeah, it's one of those cute cars. Now, I've always thought when I see people driving a smart car on the freeway, I mean, how vulnerable you must feel because with all these giant SUVs and giant cars around, you've got this little car you're putting along. But I understand they're pretty peppy, like you said. They're very peppy. They're not really made for the freeway because I think with that three-cylinder engine, the top end, something like 75, and that would be pushing it. But if you want to talk about feeling, you know, overwhelmed, it's when I used to drive my Porsche Speedster on the freeway 
and you look over to your left and you're looking eye level at the um, axle of a truck. Oh, yeah. You're sitting so low to the ground. And you're also driving with like 20 gallons of gas over your knees. Oh, yeah. In the trunk no. in front I, of you. Yeah, I had a uh, Beck Spider that my son and I drove all the way from Long Beach, California back up here to Gig Harbor, Washington. And many times we'd pull up next to a semi and my son would go, Dad, we could drive right under that thing. <laughs> Just about. <laughs> Maybe not. Probably not a good idea, but yeah, for sure. Well, Al, we're entering what I call the last lap. I'm going to fire off some questions, get some quick answers from you. So here we go. What's one of your personal habits you believe has contributed to your many successes in your career and your life? I think it's always been my focus on details. Nice. Well, I like the pun there. Focus on details. Photographer. I get it. If you could have a drink or a meal with anyone in the automotive industry, living or deceased, who would that individual be? I'd go with Sterling Moss. Yeah. He he was such a talent for driving, but he also was a great lust for life. And I mean, I, I, I got to meet him a couple of times, but, you know, we never had any conversations. Yes. Yeah. We're sorry we lost him this year. Uh, great guy. I've got to meet him many, many times. Uh, had him scheduled many times to be a guest on the show, uh, but he was not doing super well health-wise, kept having to cancel, and sadly never got him on the show before he passed, but uh, uh, certainly was fun to talk with. Now, when it comes to automotive advice someone else has ever offered you, what would the best be? It would be always be aware of what's around you and where, and that would be whether you're in a car or walking down a street or anywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But particularly in a car, because, you know, if you, if you check your mirrors and you know where everything's at around you and all of a sudden the guy in front of you or next to you does something weird, you can do an evasive movement without, you know, running in the car next to you if you know it's not there or if it is there. Great advice. And when you're shooting photography on a track with a press pass, really being aware of what's going on around you, uh, just in case yeah, something you, happens. Yeah. Yeah. You, ha- you have to be really aware where you're in a racetrack. I've seen guys who, who get into a position that's really not a good place to be because you just never know what's going to happen right. at a racetrack. Like, with a race car and a racetrack. It's like being with the ocean. Never turn your back on the ocean. Never turn your back on a race car. That's for sure. Especially when it's in motion. You betcha. Now, is there a resource that's a go-to for you that you'd like to share? A place you kind of find yourself quite often? Um, well, my place would be my galleries because they they display not only my work, but other photographers. Mm-hmm. And it's always great to look at other photographers work, you know, and, and some of them are into cars and some are into people and some are into music. But I mean, I have a huge photo collection and hanging on my walls and most of it, 95% of it is other photographers work because I would rather look at their work than my work. Cause I look at my work, <laughs> you've seen your computer. work. <laughs> yeah. And, and it just gives me such great inspiration, you know, whether it's a shot of a car or a person or something you know i get to look at it every day and and be inspired and sometimes you see new and different stuff looking at it at different times oh yeah i had uh very early on uh, jesse alexander on my show and i got to spend a day with him at his home in santa barbara going through photographs i selected four that i ended up having some tritone lithograph posters made out of and i ended up uh, buying a couple of his prints that i have in my my home and i love looking at them because he had a way of capturing people and situations uh, back in the 50s and 60s. 
sports racing, much like what your photography is. So I love having original photography on my walls. Now, I always ask my guests to share a great book. Obviously, we're going to list the racers that we've talked about today by Al Satterwhite. I'll also put your Titans book up there. Uh, Is that still available somewhere for people to go buy and the Cozumel Diary? Um, You might be able to find some on... um eBay. Okay. Um, but I don't have any, I don't have any left and I don't know if the publisher does or not. You, somebody can run a Google search and okay. see if they can find it. There you go. Is there another book that you've read that you'd like to share? Well, I haven't read it, um, but I'm, I'm waiting with bated breath to do so. And it's uh, by a friend of mine, Tim Considine. It's called uh-huh. the, the Yanks at Le Mans twice around the clock. He has spent years putting together so far. He's got a three book, three book trilogy um, that goes, starts at the beginning of Le Mans and brings it up to, um, I think around the seventies or eighties. I'm not sure, but it, he's got pictures and writing. And I mean, if, if you like Le Mans and racing, that's it. Absolutely. Tim's been a guest on the show here and uh, featured that book. Um, You know, I got to uh, meet him. Actually, had his son on the show, too. His son makes some incredible racing simulators, probably the best in the world. Uh, Tim's one of those guys that I've known for a long time, and I was actually on the lawn at Pebble a few years ago. And they had some Oscars there. And he walked up and I said, Tim, how are you doing? He said, oh, are you enjoying my car? And sitting there was this beautiful blue Oscar that he bought when he was a young man with the money he made from being on the Disney show. And he used to race it. It's not his anymore, but uh, he, I got to sit there and him tell me the story. But that book that he, the series of books he came out with, oh my gosh. I mean, that's been like a lifelong journey for him and i'll make sure i put a link to those books on the show notes page here for al just go to carsyad.com type in al satterwhite s-a-t-t-e-r-w-h-i-t and it will be right there along with of course a way to get your hands on his book uh the racers which you definitely need a copy of all right al we're up to the checkered flag here i'm gonna buy you a cool vintage car today anything you'd like something fun i know you're moving into new york so i'll include it a garage because they're a little bit hard to come by there in garage <laughs> just so you don't That's use cool. that as a, an influencer here but there's a couple rules to this game i want you to pick a car that you'll enjoy Enjoy and drive. Take out into the uh, New York countryside, perhaps. Uh, it's not a car you can sell, though, and uh, fund some other journeys. I want it to be a keeper for you. Uh, and it's the only collector car you can have. So what am I going to buy you today, Al? It's a 1965 Porsche Super 90 Coupe. Okay. Very nice. The last year of the uh, 356 series, right? Yep. Yeah. Well, you know, 356s have been on my bucket list forever. Sadly, I probably should have bought one a long time ago before they got unobtainium. But I'd love to buy you one of those cars. And, of course, that last year, everything was dialed in so nice. The 911s are just coming out. I love those cars. Is there a particular color you'd like me to get you? Oh, uh, we could go with a nice red or even a white, which normally I don't like, but on Porsches, they look good. Yeah, so maybe like a ruby red or an ivory. They make a beautiful ivory color in those old cars. What is it you like so much about the old Porsche 356? Well, I had a bunch of roadsters. I had a 59 convertible D, a 60 roadster, a 61 oh. roadster, and oh a 62 gosh. roadster. Holy cow. And the 62... The 62 Roadster, they only made 50 of them. I know. That's a very if, rare if vehicle. I had that, 
and mine I completely redid. It was it was unbelievable when I actually traded it in. Um, but I was scared to death to park it anywhere because I was afraid a Cadillac was going to back over my front hood. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, you had some nice ones. Wow. And that 62, the twin grill. Yeah, that's a very coveted collectible car nowadays and those things have become extremely valuable as well well i'll get to work see what i can find for you out there you've taken us on a fun ride today al and i know you're in the middle of packing to move back to new york i'll let you get back to that fun task but thanks for taking a little fun journey with me today and a little break from the drudgery of packing up a a home and moving it across the country before i let you go though would you offer me one little parting piece of wisdom or guidance before you rip off into the sunset in that beautiful 65 Super 90? Always pursue your dreams. Never give up. That's been my motto. Yeah. Well, I tell you, you've been around racing a lot because I've had hundreds of racers on the show, and every one of them, that's their motto. Never give up. So. Absolutely. Pursue your dreams. That's what Al's been doing. I want to make sure you get your hands on a copy of his book, too, so I'll make sure to put a link to that. Do you have a website that people can go to and learn more about you? Um, yeah, it's alsiderwhite.com. There you go. I'll make sure I put that. I think you're also on Instagram. Is that right? Yeah, I haven't been posting that much lately because I've been busy, but every now and then I put out some stuff on Instagram. You can also check my galleries if you want to see any of my work and any other photographer's work. Is there a place that they can go to find that? Well, that would be morrisonhotelgallery.com or okay. Photographs Do Not Bend, which is also known as pdnb.com. Uh, there's mrmusichead.com. And in Charleston, South Carolina, there's heartofgoldgallery.com. All right. I'll make sure to put links to all those galleries so you can check out his photography. Uh, You know, again, photography makes a great gift for people, even for yourself. So check them all out. I'll put links on Al's show notes page. And a thank you to the publisher of this new great book, of course, uh, Delius Klausing, if we're saying our German right here. I'll make sure to put links to that. Thank you to those folks for sending me a copy absolutely fantastic it's going to have a special place in my library for sure and i want to thank uh, masha Krashanka at carol Leffitt public relations for introducing me to al they've sent me some great guests here on cars yeah al thanks for being so generous today with your time and expertise and for sharing your life with me this has been really fun until you and i talk again my friend i'll see you i guess in new york down the road right all right. Thank you, Mark. And I appreciate it. You're welcome. Good luck for you, to you and stop in anytime you're in the city. Absolutely. We'll have some fun. What do you do after running a race team for 27 years with over 100 professional wins, multiple wins at the 24-hour of Daytona, and a win at Le Mans? Well, if you're Kevin Buckler, a racer and the racing group's team owner, you create Adobe Road Winery. Located in Petaluma, California, he and his team have created a winning combination with the Racing Series, four ultra-premium red wine blends that are in a class of their own. Like racing, these wines comprise of art, precision, engineering, science, and a whole lot of fun. You can choose from four blends titled Redline, Apex, Shift, and the 24. Today I'm going to tell you about Redline. It's a rich and complex blend delivering a taste of ripe blackberries, black cherry licorice, and a hint of toasty oak. An added very cool option is that this features the world's first interactive wine label. That's right. 
When you pour the wine, the three-dimensional tachometer actually hits the red line. It's incredible. The Racing Series is a killer gift for the automotive enthusiast in your life, and I've got a deal for you. If you use the code CARSYEAH, all one word, in all caps, when you go to checkout, you'll get $10 off any purchase of wines from the Racing Series. The wine ships promptly and arrives quickly right at your door. Use the code CARSYEAH at checkout for $10 off of your purchase today. There's always a seat at the table for excellence with the Racing Series. Go to adoberoadwines.com and use the code CARSYEAH to save $10 today. Cheers! Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah.